Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. Uh, in case you're wondering, and we're wondering because it's been a while since we recorded one of these episodes, so let me make sure I got my spiel down. You are listening to a podcast that talks about horror films that are sort of undiscovered, underappreciated in the marketplace. We invite our guests to bring on films with five or fewer reviews, and we talk about them, and we explain why they have been forgotten and why they probably shouldn't have been. As always, I am one half of your mats. I am Matt Monagle, and I am joined by, if you haven't figured it out by now, you haven't been paying attention, Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? I mean, I thought this was a Demon Wind only podcast, so I'm out. Well, the important thing here is that without giving too much away, tonight you are getting a movie that is in the general orbit of Demon Wind in terms of good comedic bits and like 80s, 90s fun, goopy horror. So I think that this is I think this is Demon Wind adjacent. Can we agree on that? We can agree on that. And I didn't even mean to give you that segue opportunity, but I think that's just how in tune we are as co-hosts that I will set you up and you'll spike it down without us even trying. Yeah, we're just like, we're like, you can't see it, but I got my two fingers crossed. Like the, We're like this, man. We're good at this by now. But it's never just the two of us. Why would it just be the two of us? That's boring as hell. We always have an awesome guest. And this week's awesome guest is here. And it's so appropriate that he kind of chose a musical, which I, I a quasi-musical. I love that element of that. But Donato, I'm going to let you do uh, I'm gonna let you do the introduction here. Yeah, man. I do the introductions all the time over here. And this one is no different. Today, we have a name who you'll recognize from the horror sphere of journalism on the internets from Dread Central and Hall Creek Horror and plenty of other places along. Also, the only person that has allowed me to crash their wedding to this date, <laughs> Mr. Jerry Smith, welcome. How's it going, guys? I am so excited tonight. I am very excited. Uh, and again, the only wedding I've ever crashed. So the, it, an honor to bring you on. Can we can we start with that story, please? Just because because I it, it feels like a weird tease if you bring it up and we don't talk about it. So what 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 is this wedding crashing of which you speak? Well, it, it's funny because yeah, my my wife and I we were getting married this last October, and we you know we live about two and a half hours outside of L.A. So we we wanted to come into L.A. for a weekend, get a bunch of friends together, and basically have you know a fun time. Uh, and it was so much went wrong in that entire weekend. <laughs> like an hour or two before we were supposed to get married, the venue dropped out. So we were like. Oh my God! What do we do? So we ended up just getting married in Griffith Park, <laughs> like where they found a dead body like a week later. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Donato talked about this movie. I think it was called The Drone on Twitter, and and the publicist sent me an actual drone and like two copies of the movie. And I and I responded basically saying, "Hey, I have an extra copy if you want it. Uh, you know, do you want to get together? Basically, the get together after my wedding, and I'll give you that." And uh, yeah, we got together, we all drank and had fun, and I forgot to give him the drone, so. So we just hung out after his wedding. I just got to show up, we went to a karaoke bar, and just got drunk, and I got to buy a groom and his wife drinks the entire night. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. You guys are really lucky that you ended up liking each other, because I think we've all looked at wedding photos and been like, oh, I remember, he should never have been there. So the fact that you can look at those photos, Jerry, and not feel bad, it's a happy ending to me. Well, totally. And it was like the weirdest night ever. I mean, like, I, I don't do karaoke very well. You know, like, I, I'm a musician, but like most of my stuff's instrumental. Uh, and there was this really gothy dude with like really long hair that did a, a karaoke rendition of Du Hast. And I was like, man, that's great. And then I used, I used the restroom and this drunk dude came over and was just like, hey, bro, you really did great on Du Hast. And I was like, well, what? <laughs> 
And the, I've never told Donato this, but this is a funny story. And he goes, so, so uh, what are you here for? And I go, well, I'm going to piss right now. But um, do you mean like just in general? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, my wedding. He's like, oh, cool. Who's the lucky lady or, or guy? And I go, uh, and I, you know, I, I married my wife. And he's like, okay. I saw you talking to that dude over there. So I didn't want to assume that he was talking about Donato. I, I, it, so, you know, this, this guy thought we got married. You know, in another world, in an alternate reality, we did get married that night. And I think that, that guy may be from that timeline. And we might have confused him. <laughs> but yes, yes, that is the story. That was that was definitely worth leading off with. Um, to the point where I don't, I almost kind of wish we could just move right into talking about the movie. But but the premise being what the premise is, Jerry, I want to give you some time to talk about you too. So this is the part of the podcast where we talk to our guests about kind of their their background in horror. And I know, you know, we we had Ted Gagan and we've had a few other people here that really like rock the hype in it, which means that they do like four or five different things. And we're gonna get to that with you in a minute. But I want to start at the beginning, you know, as, as any self-respecting horror fan, I'm sure you've got an origin story, right? Like, I'm sure you've got that first film, that first movie night, that first whatever that kind of like lit the fuse for you. So what was what was the thing that kind of opened the door to horror for you? Oh, boy, it's going to get depressing really quick. No, <laughs> uh, I, I grew up a uh, very kind of sheltered religious upbringing, uh, very conservative. Uh, my mom and my dad divorced when I was five. And I used to go spend summers with my mom in Arizona. And my mom was like a preacher's kid. So like when she got away from that and got away from like my very religious dad, she kind of went all out. And I don't mean like go, like going clubbing or something. Like I'd go visit her for the summer and she would be on like opium and stuff. Oh, wow. Like, uh, like, no, like crazy stuff. Well, she married this dude that was like so abusive to her and he broke her back. Like the, the day that we came to visit her for the summer, he showed up to pick us up because my mom was in the hospital with some like fake story and he ended up breaking her back. Well, uh, he started like basically abusing me as a child. Like I was, I was very abused as a child. I was kind of singled out because I was very like small and quiet and stuff. And my mom, to kind of get me away from this ongoing abuse, would give me enough money because uh, we lived right next door to this theater to basically spend from when I got up uh, until nighttime in the theater. And this is this is like the early 80s, so it was like pre-Columbine, which, I mean, led to, like, you know, films like South Park the movie being, like, the movie where they started carding kids, you know, nonstop. When I was a kid, if you had a note from your parent, or sometimes even if you just walked in, like, they'd let you see whatever you wanted. And one of the first films I watched around that time was... Uh, just over those couple of summers, Halloween 4, Child's Play, Die Hard, all those movies I would watch by myself in the theater as a kid that's like seven or eight. And nobody questioned this like seven or eight-year-old or nine-year-old, you know, like in these theaters by himself watching all these movies like Action Jackson. Uh, I mean, even once I had no business watching like The Accused with Jodie Foster, which is a movie about a woman that's gang-raped. Like, who let me into that? But I, I found my love for horror through that. You know, like I, I watched all these movies and I, I would see like the Jamie Lloyds or the, you know, Andy Barclays and all these these characters. And I would kind of live vicariously through these these horror characters because that was a way for me to get away from like the real stuff going on at home. And it sparked like this lifelong love to where like it's all that I, I thought about. But I didn't know that there were like other people that liked this stuff until I was about nine years old and I went into a supermarket. And I saw an issue of Fangoria for the first time. And that was like, 
I mean, that's like someone who finds religion and is like, whoa, I just found God. You know, like I saw this magazine that was talking about all these movies that I loved. And I would read like the letters that people wrote into the editor and all this stuff. And it made me feel like I wasn't alone for once in my life. So, I mean, that kind of sparked this lifelong obsession and love with horror. I mean, when I married my wife, you know, she knew that it would be like her, my kids and horror. Like those are like holy trinity. And like, that's, that sounds silly, but it's true. Like I love horror just as much as I love you know, more than I love most of my family members. You know, like it's, it's just been a lifelong love. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you firsthand experiences as well. Obviously, you know, you've had a much different start in getting into horror. But in the recent years, my devotion to horror is very much in the same world. And numerous relationships or even just trying to, like, meet somebody. And I, right on, like, I, you know, when I was in online dating and when I was still doing Hinge stuff, like, months ago before all this happened. And for those listening, we're still in the pandemic. But um, while that was still a thing, and I it's August, August 17th, August 17th, still the pandemic, we're still in this. But in any case, when I can still go out and I could do these things, I had plastered on my hinge profile, like horror journalist loves horror movies, watches them a lot, pretty much part of my life. And the responses I got gauged from girls who would match with me just to ask me things like, hey, so like, I don't really want to match with you. I'm not even joking. This is just an actual message. She's like, I don't really want to match with you. I just want to know why you watch these movies. And I was like, all right. I gave her like a, a paragraph long response to be like, this is why I do it. Fuck it. You're just going to unmatch me anyway. And she goes, cool, thanks. And then just immediately unmatched me. <laughs> and I was like, all right. But then also to the other sense where it's like, I plaster this stuff all over my profile. And, you know, I go to meet up with somebody and we're talking. And I bring it up because we've been talking on the app for a week and a half. Like we've had good conversation. Obviously, you must know I'm a horror person because, again, I have it everywhere. And then the end of the date comes and she's like, I mentioned horror in some way. I mentioned going home to maybe like watch a screener. And she's like, oh, I can't even watch the trailers. I would never be able to watch a full horror movie. And I'm just like, we just went through all this. I'm like, we just went through everything. <laughs> and you're going to get to the end of this first date where I'm like, all right, this is actually kind of cool. And that's what you're going to leave me with. And again, we never talked because how can I like, this is a thing that is part of me that like, it was part of why my last relationship even kind of fell apart a little bit. And I, I think it's a thing that, you know, we think it's weird and we say these things like we're, we think we're alone in it, but nah, I think more people have that perception than, than we actually assume. <laughs> What's funny is like, I, I met my wife on Tinder and I remember I was at the point in my life, like, you know, I've been divorced twice because I was in like really awful relationships. And I got to the point where it's like, I'm going to make the most not offensive, but like a Tinder profile that's basically going to like tell someone, hey, this is all I care about, you know, like, like move on basically almost as a joke. And like the only person that that was never like I, I didn't match with anyone really. Like my wife's the only one I matched with, but like I almost had my profile hyping up horror that much just to like save someone else that time, you know? Like 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 I've been so in so many things in my life where like someone's like, Oh, that's cool. But when they see how much you're into this stuff, you know, it's just like, okay, you're kind of a weirdo. You know, like why why do you constantly talk about Ted White? Like who's Ted White? You know? <laughs> Like, I, you know, I'd look up the credits of like, oh, man, Dick Warlock did the stunts on this. Yeah, he was Michael Myers in Halloween, too. And I'd look over and like a family member or someone would just be like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, like, yeah, I mean, family is a totally different subject because 
I recently had a conversation with my parents who know that I've been doing this writing thing for about eight years now, and I feel like I'm getting better at it every day, and like I'm doing pretty okay for myself. And this was not even weeks ago. We were talking, and I forget why it came up, but there's just the offhanded comment from a parent like, yeah, but we would wish you would stop writing about so many horror and gross things and like really take yourself seriously as a writer. And I'm like, what? And then it goes farther, like, yeah, we just want to see you succeed as a writer. So we want to see you write about more like, you know, normal stuff. And I'm like, but do you, or number one, are you paying attention to anything that I'm getting successful on? Number two, it's like the weird and the normal is always the context. It's always, oh, well, people that are really into horror, it's weird. You know, it's a weird thing. But those people that are obsessed with romantic comedies and glamorizing this like Hollywood romance, I think that's weirder to believe in than horror films. Oh, most definitely that. And like, to be completely honest, I can't see myself going to like a walk to the a walk to remember convention. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go to a Nicholas Sparks convention and be like, "Oh man, these are my people." You know, but you go to a horror convention, and like, you know, it's kind of beating a dead horse. We've all said this as horror fans, but you go to a horror convention and you find kind of like your tribe. You know, these are people that will never judge you. That you know that, that you could talk about the most mundane, meaningless to most people things that mean a lot to us. I mean. I've had people stop me at conventions, and this is the weirdest thing ever still, and just randomly want to talk to me about Friday the 13th, the final chapter, because they wrote an article or read an article I wrote or like a podcast episode. You know, like you can't go to like any other convention or a group of people and find that kind of fulfillment in these friendships and these like acquaintances that like, you know what I mean? Like horror is, horror's always been like the thing that brought me out of my shell. Hey, Jerry, actually, that kind of raises an interesting point for me when you're talking about your history with horror because I feel like it what you had and the way that you grew up watching a diverse number of movies is not something you could replicate 10 15 years later because right like now that there are so many there's just a set few number of films are going to sit and clog up box office at theaters for so long like the idea that you could go in three different times a week and see three completely different lineups just doesn't exist so did that? Do you think that kind of adds to like the adventure element that you didn't, you weren't just looking at the same movie on the marquee week after week, but like you went in and stuff was different day to day? I well, for me, what made it so magical is that it was pre-internet. You know, it was it was pre like so many things. So it, I I knew nothing about these movies that I would go watch every day. It was like blind watching every single movie because I was so young. You know, I had no idea that Halloween 1 through 3 even existed before I saw 4. You know, like, you'd go in there, you'd see a poster, and build, and, and I think that's what, it, like, really sparked my love for posters. You know, like, those posters made a young, you know, me. Just, it, it transported me into a different place, and it, it made it such a huge thing for me, day in and day out, to go see these movies. You know, I, I'd watch Predator, followed by Revenge of the Nerds 2. You know, like movies I had no idea what I was going in to see. And I, I'd come out like such huge fans of some of them. And the ones that I didn't like, you know, I'd walk out and be like, oh, you know, at least I saw something. And that's something that like it can't be replicated or, or duplicated these days. You know, my kids, they know everything about a movie by the time we go to the theater or the drive-in to see it. And I, I feel like that's lost. On well, let me ask about um, your transition onto the other side of the business, too, because, you know, definitely you, you're a huge fan. You grew up watching this stuff. You've got a diverse group of tastes. that's super important to you. But later on, I mean, you're, you're a film critic, you're 
a musician, you're a composer. How did you, at what point did you realize the question that I usually ask, at what point did you realize that you had something to contribute back to this genre? I was in bands uh, before I started uh, writing professionally. Like that was always like something I didn't know that there was, you know, film writing, you know, other than like the books that I would read, you know, I, I didn't know that that was a thing, you know, in the early nineties and that kind of stuff. So I, I kind of gravitated towards music. So my, like, I was always so into soundtracks. I mean, John Carpenter, you know, Alan Howard, uh, so many different people, you know, Tangerine Dream. Growing up, those were like idols to me. So I'd always get into music. I learned how to play keyboard, piano, guitar, bass, basically anything but drums. Uh, you know, and so I kind of followed that for a long time, got into some really awful screamo bands, uh, opened up for Fall Out Boy once, which was really weird. Uh, and, you know, that was just kind of the trajectory that I was going on. You know, I, I figured at some point I'll be in some shitty band that would go on tour. You know, some people would like us. I would hate it. I would, you know, eventually quit and do my solo thing with, like, like instrumental shit, and that would be my life. But, you know, a lot of underground and, and independent horror kept coming out around the time that I kind of got tired of being in bands, and I would discover all these movies that I didn't even know were a thing. Like, I remember I went to, like, Weekend of Horrors in 2007, and that was the year that, you know, they, they were hyping up Hatchet and Wrong Turn 2 and all these movies that I, I sat there and I was just like, holy shit, you know, like, I'm not the world's biggest Hatchet fan, but I remember seeing, like, the early previews of that stuff at, at that Weekend of Horrors in 2007 and thinking, like, wow, this is everything as a, like, that, as a kid I would have loved. And it, it kind of, revi like, revitalized my love for the genre. Okay? I was always into it. But 2007 and that convention in, in particular really made me want to just dump, like, jump right back in. And so I just kind of obsessively got back into horror. You know, it was all that I read. I read all the sites. You know, I, I was really into uh, Icon to Fright at the time, you know, Bloody Disgusting, even though I kind of regret it now. You know, I used to read Chud religiously. You know, there was all these sites. That was all I would read around that time. And, you know, I kind of became acquaintances with some of the people from those sites. You know, anytime I'd come into L.A., I'd talk to them if I'd run into them at premieres or screenings and stuff. And then one day, a few friends were going to go to a premiere of a P.C. Anderson movie. I can't remember which one it was. And I was bummed because I think my, my son was sick or something like that, so I had to stay home. And I reached out to one of the acquaintances uh, that I knew from one of the sites. Uh, and I was just like, you know what? I, I've always written stuff, and I love horror. Like, can you give me tips on maybe starting my own site? And then, you know, he, he was like, well, I could do that, or you could just join our site, which was like a huge deal to me. And I started writing for Icons of Fright for a while just as a contributor. And then... Uh, he got a bigger job at like FearNet and that kind of stuff and said, hey, I'm doing all these things. Can I kind of like give you the keys to the kingdom, so to speak? Can you be the editor-in-chief of Icons of Fright for me because it's going to go away if you don't? And that was a site that meant a lot to me at the time. So I became the editor-in-chief of Icons of Fright without really having written anything. You know, like it was kind of weird. It was kind of weird to steer that site that I had read for years with no no expertise, no experience whatsoever. And that like really hindered me for a long time. I didn't know how to be a good editor in chief. You know, I, I to be honest, I was kind of a dick for a while. And, and that's something that I, I really regret. But like, that opened up doors for that. And then Rebecca McKendry gave me a chance at Fangoria. And that led to Rebecca McKendry 
basically giving me a chance at Blumhouse.com when that started, and, you know, Delirium Magazine, and it led to a lot of other things. And it's basically been this, like, ripple effect of one person kind of, like, giving me a chance and, and so on. And, I, you know, early on, and I think this is very important, early on, I had this, like, you know, I, I read all these sites that had this kind of, like, I was super into Ain't It Cool. And I had I read all these writers, and I think the, the first couple years that I wrote, like, over, like, I started about a decade ago. Uh, the first couple years I wrote, like, it was just me, basically me aping those styles, you know, like, sarcastic, kind of negative, that kind of stuff. And, like, I think it took, like, good editors to say, like, dude, like, that's not your voice. Find your own voice. And I think that that's something that, like, when people realize what kind of writer they are and what kind of writer they aren't, I, I think it's very freeing. And I think throughout the years, I've, I've kind of discovered what kind of person I am as a writer, you know? Like, I, I'd rather lift things up than... than you know, tear them down. You know, I, I'm a pretty positive person in my day-to-day -day life, so, like, it kind of weirds me out to look back at that er those early days and be like, man, you were kind of a dick, you know? But, yeah, it, it's it's basically been this person gives me a chance and this person and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, the voice stuff is super important. I, as someone who in college was reading Ain't It Cool probably just as much as you were, and at the time, that was what we were being told is one of the big sites and one of the big... I guess, places to get anything involved in the multimedia world via news, reviews, and things of that nature. And I know some of the writers and things like that, but it those sites are also, number one, like we call them sites, but they're kind of blogs. And we I think we have to take that a little bit serious where I, I'm not knocking on blogs or things of that nature. Of course, we all write for blogs. We all do stuff like that. But I do feel like in that time, in that popularity sphere, when the blogs were becoming popular and taking over, negativity was a lot of what people wanted. And it, it sucks because it worked and it was able to sell things for a while. And that was just a byproduct of the internet at that time, internet trolls. And, you know, you see some of these sites now with these devoted followings still, and you see what their commenters are like, and you see all these things, and you're like, wow. I, I never noticed that at the time because it was just normal. But now me looking back at what I used to read on Ain't It Cool, and I'm just like, oh, wow, we've really come a long way. And that again, that voice is so important because it's not writing what you think people want or want to read or hear. You're, you start to write for yourself because you're like, I don't want to be part of this. And you start to write how you want to be heard and how you think it should go. And that's the most important thing because aping somebody else's work you're just being another version of them when you're robbing the world from like the first version of you oh totally and, it, and like i said it's so freeing i remember when i finally like it like it wasn't like a profound thing but I, I remember like one day i was just thinking like i'd rather write like this and i i feel like that's when my writing got better you know like it used to be like very short little like snappy things you know because i thought that's what people wanted to read you know like because it's, and I think the popularity game really affected me early on, you know, like coming into the whole writing community or like the horror community, you know, the popular people were always the ones that were very sarcastic. It was, it was always the ones that were like, you know, would jab at people. And it was just, and I, I feel like I was so consumed with that, the popularity game at first, that it completely just, it, it made me like, I wasn't original. I, I wasn't anything to read whatsoever. Like, I look back at some of the early things I wrote, 
And as a reader, I would have I would have commented negatively <laughs> on those. Like there's there's like one filmmaker who was so upset with me over a review, and at the time I was just like, dude, chill out. And in hindsight, like I would have beat my ass. You know, I would have beat my ass if I read that. And I remember like a couple years later, after I kind of like realized where I was going wrong, I had to interview that 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 filmmaker. <laughs> he was not stoked on me. You know, but like I feel like even when you try to write uh with good intentions, I feel like it could backfire sometimes. Uh, you know, like a a friend of mine made a movie and I was talking to him, I did a set visit, and I, I won't name who it is, but I did a set visit and he was talking about this this kind of term that he created. And it wasn't saying that this is a thing. It was like, this is what I realized about these movies. I'm gonna call it Death Wave. And, and I was just like, that is interesting. I go, would you mind if I wrote an article about just the idea of it and interviewed tons of people and asked what their thoughts on were, you know, would be on this? And he's like, yeah, of course. So I interviewed dozens of people, filmmakers, writers, whatever, about whether they agree with this thing or they disagree with it. It was for Blumhealth.com. I wrote, I wrote the Death Week piece. And I remember the entire horror community hated me for two weeks at least. Like, I had certain filmmakers that I loved tweet, man, and he, they would repost my article and be like, man, this is the reason I don't want to do horror films anymore, this guy. You know? <laughs> like, I, I, you got to, like, walk the line of, like, finding your voice, but also realizing, like, when you're writing something that will um, kind of unintentionally piss people off. Like, I'm not saying, like, safe tote everything you do, but I, I feel like, when it comes to writing, like you write for yourself, but at the same time, you have to realize that like what you put out there has an effect on. Yeah. I, I remember the death weight piece. Don't, don't you worry. <laughs> I think I was at fantastic fest when it broke and I, I was hearing the, uh, the, the death wave reactions from just everyone at fantastic. Fest. <laughs> so not envious of that situation by any means. Well, I want to, I, I really want to talk about this for the rest of the evening, but Jerry, you brought a film and I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler here. You brought a movie that Donato and I actually agree on, which never happens on this podcast. So I think, uh, I think what we should do is we should take a moment here and let's pivot to talk about today's film cast a deadly spell. Uh, so when you guys come back, we're going to be here and we're going to talk about this movie. You know, we say this every week, but really, we can't do this. We could not do this without the support of listeners like you. So every week, every episode, we're going to give some of our supporters a chance to, to, to share what's on their mind, to see to see what they're thinking about. Uh, Donato, you are the reader. You're the man with plan. Um, who are we talking about? What do they have to say? I mean, I wouldn't say I have a plan, but I do have words in front of me, and I will read them aloud, as you have told me to. First up, we have Megan Navarro from Blade Disgusting, and I say that because this is her message. Please check out the Blade Disgusting podcast for current news, trending topics, and new releases in horror. All delivered to your ears in 60 minutes or less. So yeah, new podcast from them, and uh, I'm going to go check it out. Yep, it's uh, it's Megan, and it's Zena, who has... Uh, you've all, Both of them have been on our show, so of course this is a keeping it in the family a bit. But you can check that out at, at BDisgustingPod. Um, it's a kind of a gross name, but it's Bloody Disgusting Podcast. And yeah, it, it, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of horror news that's going to be breaking, especially as we get more into the spooky season. 
uh, and they're going to be the people that are going to kind of walk you through what matters, what's important, and what they're excited for. So check it out. Subscribe, leave a review, do all those good things. Should I go with the second one, Mr. Mono? Let's hear it from this person. Who is this? Do you want to introduce this person at least? This person um, happens to be the woman that I'm married to, Mrs. Andrea Monagle. And she has a message for us that is of the following literary nature. What if you ended up inheriting the Amityville horror type house your family fled in the middle of the night when you were a kid? That's the premise of Riley Sager's Home Before Dark, a twisty turning read to kickstart your fall. Check it out and support your local booksellers. Yeah, so this one's fun for, uh, it's, well, for her, but also for us a little bit. Riley Sager is um, a kind of a best-selling horror author, and it's just it's just so happened that Andrea has managed to copy edit all the books that, that he's produced. Uh, the first one, Final Girls, is one that I think got a little bit of buzz in the horror community, but he's a really fun author, and because she worked on his first book and she had an opportunity to get it hyped for it before it was actually released and created a bit of buzz, um, you know, sometimes you just, you, you develop those authors and you keep an eye on them along the way. So Riley Sager is very much a writer of note in the Monagle household. And if that premise, Amityville Horror, Family Values, if that is attracted to you, she's not really a spooky book reader, but she really, really liked it. So highly recommend it. If I had time to read things in addition to all the screeners and everything I watch, I would gladly check this one out. But uh, i going to put this on the list for, hey, maybe someday I'll be able to read things again. So there you have it. Famously illiterate, Matt Donato uh, will not be reading any Riley Sager novels, but for the rest of you, you got a podcast, you got a book, you know what to do next. Let's get back into the show. Okay, welcome back. So the movie we're going to talk about this week, which you've already seen in the title of the episode on whatever podcast service you use, so this shouldn't be a spoiler, but this week's movie is Cast a Deadly Spell. It is a 1991 HBO, yes, that's correct, HBO film uh, directed by Martin Campbell, who's best known for revitalizing the Bond franchise not once, but twice, and starring an all-star cast. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what era you talk about, but we've got Fred Ward, David Warner, Julianne Moore, Clancy Brown, and a whole bunch of other character actors that you recognize. The film is set in 1940s Hollywood, um, it gets comparisons. This movie gets comparisons to Who Framed Roger Rabbit because, like, that movie exists in a world where cartoons are sort of taken for granted. This film takes place in a world where magic exists. It's boring. Everybody knows about it. It's just a thing. And Fred Ward playing Detective Harry Philip Lovecraft is one of the last, one of the, the few holdouts, one of the few people who refuses to use magic and goes about his daily business solving crimes without any ruins, any spells, a magic wand whatsoever. As these things sort of go, and because his last name is Lovecraft, he soon finds himself, after taking a case, embroiled in a conspiracy from the beyond the veil, uh, elder gods who are trying to take over Earth, and it is him and his sardonic wit and about 1,800 cigarettes that are going to get him through this unscathed. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun movie. I'm really excited for the conversation, but I want to start with you, Jerry. What made you, when, when Donato reached out and said, Hey, come on our podcast, bring a movie you feel passionate about that meets this criteria. What made this the film that you wanted to talk about? I I grew up loving this movie. It it was like during the kind of era where HBO did a lot of original films and premiered them on their channel. Like that was, you know, if I couldn't go to the movie theater, I would be sitting in front of my TV waiting for the new HBO original film. And it didn't just have to be genre. You know, just I, I loved the programming that they would do because the movies were always like A-list actors or B-actors, you know, with like A-list plots, 
You know, like you'd get films like this one, you know, Cast a Deadly Spell or Wedlock, Rucker Hauer, Full Eclipse, which is one of my favorite films of all time. You know, you'd get shot through the heart, you know, and, and eventually we'd get a, a sequel to Cast a Deadly Spell with Witch Hunt starring Dennis Hopper. I mean, like HBO, they were just firing at all cylinders around this time. And I remember, you know, seeing the previews for this one about the premiere on HBO, and it just looked like everything that excite, like just was exciting to me. You know, I grew up reading, like, uh, James Elroy novels way too young. You know, like, I, I, I got suspended in fourth grade for bringing a backpack full of Stephen King and James Elroy and <laughs> Clive Barker novels to school. You know, like, I, I was so into that kind of noir stuff that Elroy was writing, but I also loved monsters and Lovecraft and everything else. That like, this, like, even just, like, the little trailer that they played on HBO, the little promo thing, like, it spoke to me like, this is your movie. And I was 10 years old when it premiered, and I've, I've loved it since. I mean, I hadn't seen it in a few years before revisiting for this, but for some reason, as soon as Donato reached out and talked to me about it, like, this movie just popped in my head. Yeah, Donato, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose a question to you. I don't like horror comedies, but I like to cast Deadly Spell. Tell me why. Why did I like this movie? I am honestly shocked that you liked it, because, uh, Jerry, just so you know, again, me and Monocle have a very different range of films that we appreciate and i am the horror comedy guy i you know when patchwork was one of the episodes that was one i loved he didn't uh he is the period based doom and gloom take me to a medieval setting and make me feel things kind of horror person and he will always be that so i don't understand why you adore this zany like half gremlins half uh freaking dick tracy mashup that has magic like almost there are scenes that this feels like a naked gun movie where magic is just happening in a police station and no one cares because this is just normal and they cut to the werewolf and they cut to the vampire and it is also ridiculous to the point that there's a scene where it's just blood rain it's not regular rain it just starts raining blood but i'm gonna say you enjoy this monocle because of the way that it is so mundane about it all, I think that was the way you said it before, the way that magic is just a part of life now, and the way that it's a pretty solid noir narrative, and then you throw... It really it is. is. It's a great noir narrative. Fred Ward, as you may have said off the podcast, and you probably will say many times in the rest of this episode, needed to just be a noir actor. He was an amazing detective uh, in like the gumshoe era. And it is so of a time of horror films that we have not seen in so, so damn long where the commitment to a tremendous gimmick, I'll call it, but it's not a gimmick, it's a universe. The world building is very engaged. It goes practical as much as possible with these giant creature effects like gargoyles and lava monsters, like all these things. The way that it goes full force, big budget into a story that would now get like maybe a million if you're lucky. I, I think, again, the magic is here with, not, not to make a pun about a movie called Cast Deadly Spell, but it is, it is magical the way that it pulls everything together and it goes full force. Also, like, see, I'm not a huge fan of horror comedies either. Yay, thank you! And I am very much a doom and gloom person, but I think what makes this film work so well with me is there's great comedy in here, but it's played so straight and deadpan 
that like it, it feels almost endearing. Like there's there's actual lines that I have memorized from this movie based on the performances. Like Fred Ward's his his delivery Fred Ward's delivery is so just on point with it never feeling like a joke, even when it is. Because like the Naked Gun, Naked Gun's silly as fuck. But it's so much fun to watch because Leslie Nielsen plays it so straight that that adds to the humor. And I feel like in horror comedies especially, they're played for specific laughs that sometimes it's over the top. And I think me, I prefer horror comedy where it is played straight. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it on that one, Jerry, because it's, it's, the, it's the deadpan of Fred Ward. And I've, I've talked about, I think the first horror film that I really remember seeing was uh, Tremors 2. I came to the genre super late. And so I'm predisposed to not only like Fred Ward, but like Fred Ward when he's already in sort of a stoic campy space. But specifically with this film, I think part of it is the fact that yes, there, there's like, there's huge gags where he gets handed some business cards about a dance center and keeps handing the wrong one to clients. And they all look at them like, oh, I'm not really into dance. And then he has to like go back. Like that's, that's, that's silly jokes. That is 100% um, police academy, like style of uh, naked gun kind of jokes there. But it is done, A, um, to what Jerry said, it's done completely deadpan. And it, the entire thing is filtered through such a dedicated homage to a period of, of Hollywood films that even when it's being wild and funny, it, that wildness and funniness is still in service of a, a, a type of film that you know well. So it's always adaptation. It's always interpretation. And it doesn't, it doesn't ever feel like they're doing things that are just supposed to be goofy for goofy's sake because all of it is kind of steeped in your knowledge of both the horror genre and 1940s noir. And it the commitment to those bits is just ever present. The difficult thing with horror comedy a lot of the times is you establish the joke early and you leave yourself no place to go. And by the end of it, about two thirds of the way through, you're like, it's not funny anymore. And so now it's just sort of violent, but I, I've seen better, so I don't know how I feel about that. And because this, because this is always a noir first, that part of it carries the entire film through. And when it's funny, those are good moments that stand out from the, the core. They aren't like the thing that's supposed to maintain the movie all the way. Yeah, and I want to go to the practical effects very quick because this is a, something that's very near and dear to my heart. You know, whenever we talk about a movie, you're going to get another star out of me on my review if you're going all practical and doing it with a certain kind of energy that, that again, we don't really see a lot in mainstream horror anymore. It's become more CGI heavy. And as technology gets better, CGI makes things a lot easier. And that's just how films are made now. And it kind of sucks when you go back to a 90s era film. Again, this is 1991. And you have these moments where a, to reference the mechanic again with the, the gnarly teeth, he just kind of kicks open the car that he's working on and there's just these little gremlin puppets just eating everything, just like chewing on like wires and pipes and things like that. And it's such a jarring moment because, yeah, they're obviously like hens and puppets. Like it's so obvious they're not real gremlins, but also they're not these dumb little CGI monsters that look like they don't belong. there. It's somebody working these things, bringing them to life. And it adds to this level of just artistry. And I'm going to call it artistry because it may look silly and bonkers and weird, but it's silly and bonkers and weird. And it's still done with so much love. And that continues throughout just these little gremlin puppets to the gargoyle, who is a, an actor in a, a full performance suit. And there's this ridiculous moment where the gargoyle murders somebody in cold blood and Fred Ward's character has to stop him. So he starts shooting him. And the gargoyle, he goes to get shot like for the 10th time. And he just crosses his arms and looks at Fred Ward and does that like does that emotion of like, 
you're really going to shoot me again? Haven't you done that 10 times and it hasn't worked? So Fred Ward kicks him in the balls or whatever the gargoyle equivalent of <laughs> testicles would be. And for some reason, it works. Like, bullets can't penetrate his skin, but still, if you get kicked in that area, you're going to take a gargoyle down. It's such an insanely ridiculous moment, even for that film. But because it's all this practical, and because it's all these people in costumes and this almost Halloween-y vibe, it gets away with it. That, and I believe in this world. And I think that that's what makes this film so unique to me. Like, I remember watching Gangster Squad, like, and thinking, like, I don't buy this fucking movie at all. Like, at all. None of these guys would be these characters. Every single actor in Cast a Deadly Spell, I believe in this film. I believe in the monsters, too. Like, it's, it's rare for a film that, ha- that goes for this approach that latches onto me like this. Like, I get lost watching this movie. And even the sillier elements, like, I have so much fun with. I mean... Raymond O'Connor as Pugwell is one of my favorite characters ever. Like, how someone made the creepy security guard from Halloween 4 into one of the coolest maniacal henchmen around is insane to me. Like, there's that scene, there's a scene in the restroom, in the bathroom in a club, and this guy's trying to hide in a toilet. And, you know, Tugwell comes in and does this little, like, finger, like, fire thing. And the guy has these cards, and the character of Pugwell, this henchman, uh, makes these, like, this kind of, like, cyclone, this typhoon of cards just basically go around this guy and cutting his face up. And then you see the aftermath and, like, the practical effects and, like, the appliances look so great that you get lost in this world. And it shows how practical effects can make genre fans or just people in general, they can just bring them into this, this existence of the film. You know, and, like, I was talking to someone recently about the difference between the original Nightmare on Elm Street and the remake. It's not just the performances in the remake that bothers me. It's that you could take a $15 spandex thing in the original and still and it still looks great. But you could do like crazy CGI in the remake and it looks like absolute shit. You know, this film, they know that practical effects work so well. And it, it helps bring the story to life with those great performances. Too. Yeah, that's a great example because that was a huge call out when uh, I wrote my remake comparison piece for A Nightmare because I'd never seen the Nightmare remake until a few months ago when it was on Netflix. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to go into this. And I do a monthly column of Blade Discussing where I compare remakes. And I'm like, all right, I might as well make it this month's remake column. I might as well get this one out of the way. And that specific example is so ingrained in my mind for that exact reason you just said. You can take the cheapest latex overlay, just put it where a wall should be and have an actor press into it. And you have one of the most iconic shots in horror that we still think about all the time. And then you can recreate that same damn thing with CGI, which you assume would look 10,000 times better, but it just looks atrocious because it's cheap CGI, it's glossy. You don't take as much care to it because whatever, it's it'll look fine. We'll just darken it up and do all these things. And man, practical is where it is. If you don't have me, as you said, in the world, I, I believe in these things when they're practical. I can put myself in your shoes and see these characters next to humans and think they're real versus CGI when... We know they're just pixelated blurs and there's no one really there. It, it, there's something so missing from these kind of films that love the genre enough to create the monsters from scratch. Yeah, and I like um, going through the, the movie and kind of thinking about the different set pieces and stuff that they, they have that sort of add to that as well. I, I feel like I, I'm it's beating this dead horse again and again, but it all serves to the purpose of the story, right? Like, at the at the very core base of 
when you kind of strip away everything, what Cast a Deadly Spell is, is it's a prototypical noir about post-World War II era expansionism and like what happened to the city of Los Angeles when like the suburbs started to develop. And every noir worth its salt has like, they're developing condos in the hills and there's a body buried underneath or somebody's skimming money or something like that. And part of the, the reason that I like all these little creatures and character bits is, is the screenwriter, Joseph Doherty, found so many different ways of dropping those into what we expect from a good noir and making it work. So like, yes, to the, to the creature design, to the practical effects, to the lived in quality of the world. And if it was that, if it was just that, this would be an interesting movie. What makes it a good one is how thoughtful the filmmaking team was in figuring out what elements of horror, what elements of cosmic fantastical world building could fit in with this story. And it never feels forced. You never feel like we are watching it. Like there are, there are definitely movies you watch. There are definitely kind of like hybrid stuff where like you can feel as, as I always think of because of the, the 30 rocks get like the whole damn premise is sweaty. Like you can feel the thing coming apart as the seams because they're just so determined to make the shit work when it doesn't work. And here it it fits. And that is, that's, that's just impressive. It's, it's harder to do than you think because these things are not supposed to fit together as well as they should. That, and I mean, it's very much a, like cliche noir film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has certain beats and character moments that just feel like, you know, you know the story walking into it. I mean, the moment David Warner comes on screen as the guy that hires Fred Ward's character, you know he's going to end up being the main bad guy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know that. And even Fred Ward's Lovecraft character, I mean, it's very, like, Marlowe. You know, like, you, like you've seen this movie before, but what elevates it, and I... I I'm cautious about using the word elevate after writing death wave. Like I do not use that word, but what brings it to that next level is it takes this kind of like American history that we're familiar with, you know, the forties and that kind of stuff. And it adds this fantastical element to where like you're experiencing something that you're halfway familiar with, but at the same time, you're experiencing something so magical that it feels so unique. I mean, this, this film, I can't, think of another film that would have a werewolf like interrogation scene in a police precinct and not do it while winking at the audience and i think that's a big reason why i don't really care for a lot of horror comedy films is it seems like they're constantly like winking at their viewers you know it's like huh when you're in on this joke here's the rules of a slasher film and it's like i don't want that you know like i'm smart enough and most viewers are smart enough to get what you're doing don't look at us break the fourth wall, or don't look at us and explain these jokes or these references. And I feel like this film never does that once. It gives us what we're familiar with, you know, like the Raymond Chandler-esque approach. And it gives us this kind of like, and, and the cover art for this film is, is 100% right. It feels like a darker take on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, you know, it replaces magic with monsters, you know, and even Julianne Moore's character is very reminiscent of Jessica Rabbit. We've seen this movie before, but the way they go about it, it, it breathes new life into this like subgenre. And I think it's in the smallest ways, too. And I will try not to keep harping on the practical effects, but I have to go back to just a few little instances that denote the world building and that champion that aspect. And they are the dumbest moments and the smallest moments that really don't mean anything in the grander scheme. But they are the moments that build the world where in the background somebody might be mixing a drink and they have the shaker and they're shaking it 
and they just let it go and it keeps shaking in midair and they can go do something else for a minute and come back and like their cocktail's done when they go back to it or the the simple lighting of the flame by just snapping your fingers like you know you want to you want to light the dame cigarette so you just snap your fingers and you could do it so cool and all of those little things that think they shouldn't matter the the desk jockey who to get a file out of the uh the drawer they don't walk over and do it they have it levitate and pop up and they just grab it out of midair these are all little things they're all tiny little things but they all mean so much in the, the by the end of the film because we have now given ourselves to the fact that this is a real living breathing world that and like those small things they they have multiple meanings they're there to like impress us and be like wow that's cool but at the same time they're also there to annoy the hell out of fred ward's character he finds the use of magic so lazy you know he despises magic it's against his moral code and every time he sees that and every time we as viewers see people do that in the movie we kind of giggle to ourselves because we know that the lovecraft character is going to be like so annoyed with having seen that you know like it it like those small little things serve the story and even serve his character arc just as much as like huge plot points. I do okay, yeah. and I I do want to. Oh, go ahead. I was I was gonna I was gonna switch gears a little bit, so I'll let you finish this thought, Tanana. I was actually gonna switch gears a little bit too, Mister mm. Monagle. So, well, do you want to go first, or do you want me to? Let me let me ask one question then um, of of Jerry, and this is an important question. Jerry, you're a musician. You've worked with singers before. Is there a worse lip syncer in the history of cinema? Than Julianne Moore in this movie, yes or no? No. <laughs> yep. No. That's that was that was it. I just I I love the performance that she's doing. She's such a good actress. She understands the character that she's supposed to play, the femme fatale. She commits to it. She's great. I have never seen somebody who is so bad at lip syncing in a film, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to point that out. That's all I wanted to say. Oh no, I I agree with you a hundred percent. No, it is it's pretty bad. Pretty bad. Donato, please. So I think my. Yeah, yeah, no. So my little diversion was going to be, I kept laughing at how much this film references the 40s and references the historical context and how cheap everything was. It it goes out of its way to tell us how cheap cigarettes were. And like, it goes out um, like, oh, this is 1948 or 30 cents to send a postcard. Like, did we really need to know it was that cheap to send a postcard? Like, no, we didn't. <laughs> but even, um, you know, even the main character, Fred Ward's character dropping something like, Oh, you know, you're going to have to pay me $40 a day. And I know it ain't cheap, but, and it's like, no, that is pretty cheap. $40 a day. Like that's not even an hourly wage anymore. And it's, I, I laugh at the context of going the historical route in those moments and just winking back a little bit to be like, remember the forties? Holy wow. That was crazy. But then you also get moments that take it more serious. And we keep talking about the foolishness and the Joker aspects of this film and the little things that are, are comical and funny in, in the moment. But then you get to the scene where they are making, or they're building the, the uh, housing complexes and they're building these architectural things. And you're in the middle of nowhere and you've hired laborers and they're basically zombies. They're represented as mindless zombies who are doing the work for the criminal or lords or you know whether it's whether it's on the books or off the books and if you look at the people who are playing the zombies like they're all minority characters and to squeeze to kind of sneak that in there after you've just had a gargoyle get its proverbial nuts kicked and then you just throw that little hint of like oh yeah but we're also going to have like some serious commentary in here and that speaks back to what monogle was saying and what jerry you were saying too where 
this is a movie that found a way to kind of think of everything, even when it didn't have to. There was no reason for it to get serious and to put these little details in there, but it just makes you realize that the script, everything, was paying attention. Even, I mean, some people might find this exploitative, and, and I apologize if this film does make them feel that way, but one thing I've always liked about it is the fact that Lee Turgeson as Larry slash Lily, like, I, I love that part of this movie because you watch a, a noir film and you don't expect, you know, to see that. You don't expect to see a main character, one of the main characters, being in drag without it being for, like, comedic relief. You know, and th uh, that's another thing that's kind of played straight. And I appreciate that about this film. And I feel like they could have done so many things. And that what you're saying about, like, the zombies, you know, stuff, and, like, with Lee Turgeson, you know, playing drag the whole time, like, I appreciate that about this film. You know, like, it, it, they didn't have to do that. But the fact that they did that and the fact that they thought of that, I think it, it speaks volumes on how much they took this film seriously, even in its comedic, uh, you know, parts of it. Yeah, there's there. It, it's complicated, right? Because, you know, it, I can imagine seeing this as a contemporary audience member. And Donato and I have talked about this on the show, that the trap that we sometimes fall into as horror fans is we have waited in the worst, the most uncomfortable, the most politically incorrect, the most just like outright bigoted and hateful stuff that has existed in addition to the good stuff. But it has existed in history for 100 years, right? Like a lot of horror has bartered mm -hmm. in cheap jokes. It's bartered in shock value. It's it's bartered in like offensiveness to sell the scares. And so we are we we tend to be more forgiving as audience members because we look for the good stuff. And when we find it, we're like, this is so much better than XYZ VHS tape that I watched from 100 years ago. If you don't watch a lot of this kind of stuff and you if you come to this, if you're not familiar with noir, if you're not familiar with horror and you come to this, the fact that there is portrayed in a 1991 film and a 1940s quote unquote adaptation, you know, a positive role model-esque gay couple is really powerful. There is a lot of a gay panic from Fred Ward's character. There are some really uncomfortable sexual politics involving the daughter of David Warner's character um, that probably are best if we don't remark upon those because they're sort of integral to the ending, but they're also extremely gross. So there is that to put there. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's like Donato and Jerry, like you guys were saying, like it has this understanding of what it means to be worker class in America and the fact that in this world, being dead does not does not end your servitude for like the rich folks that are doing that. It has this consciousness of class. It has this consciousness of race and gender and how it fits into this world. And you don't need to do that. Like I recently watched for the first time Bright. Bright is a stupid fucking film that has a really admittedly interesting premise. It takes this world where it has a built-in allegory for what it is like to be different in America, and it does nothing with it. And I was struck by how in 1991, 20 years before, more than 20 years before Bright came out, there was a film that was trying to do a better job of that, trying to portray a world where magic exists, where werewolves and creatures exist, and trying to like at least give the audience the impression that they've thought through this beyond just the surface level. And the fact that it does engage with that, I think there, I think there is value. My my attitude is always, can you write a really good college essay about this? And I think if you took this and put it against the body of 1940s work or even contemporary 1991 horror cinema, I think this comes out looking okay. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. And even uh on a you know stylistically, like this film, it looks it's shot so well. 
for like a made for HBO movie, you know, like, like the look of it is so just enthralling. I mean, it also has enough gradient skies to rival Tony Scott. Mm. I mean, like this, like that's one of my favorite things about the movie. It does have things to say and it has excellent performances and the practical effects are great, but like the, there's so much put into this film by every single person across the board, from writing to directing to performing to just the cinematography. Like, this is a film that, like, I will go to bat for 24-7, like, any day of the week, because, like, I really feel like this is a film that so many people need to discover because it's something really unique. And it, it's something more than, like, face like face value. Like, you look at this film, you look at the cover, and you're like, oh, that's all right. But like if when you watch it for the first time, you, you kind of realize that you're watching something really interesting that maybe you haven't seen before. Yeah, and I think everyone here knows my appreciation of the uh, color filtration of the red variety. And as I'm watching that blood rain scene, it could have been done in a way that is not as effective as it was done in the film. It just looks amazing. You just have David Warner's character looking out the window, and it's now covered in this thick, red liquid that's tainting the entire his entire image and at that moment you know as as we've already talked about before you kind of know the way warner's character is probably gonna probably gonna skew at the end of the film but maybe we don't know that at that point but the way that it can tell that foreshadowing ominous plot point through visual storytelling and just you get that coverage of the red over his face as it oh it just it just gives that like evil fucking vibe of just this amazing amazing way of conveying that and there's a lot of good reds in here there's a lot of real good reds and i really like it i really like all of it so let me let me ask um as we kind of round third and go towards home on this episode you know usually at the end of the episodes one of the things we talk about is is why was this movie forgotten what can we do to rediscover it but the narrative here is is really simple um and it's really simple because this is an hbo film and HBO and Warner Brothers have just launched kind of their one-stop shop for every property that they've ever owned. Because this is an HBO release, the rights on this are super simple. It's owned by HBO. HBO doesn't need to license it. Nobody else needs to license it on their behalf. So this is, as long as there is a platform for HBO to show old movies, this is going to be one of old old movies. I'm sorry, pre-2000 movies. This is going to be one of them. So let me pose the question to the two of you then. We know where this movie is. We know that it's on HBO Max, and we know that it'll stay on HBO Max indefinitely unless somebody decides they don't want to show it anymore. What do you think the rediscovery process is going to look like for people as people start to dig through and get through the, you know, the, the obvious stuff, the birds of prey, the movies that they're excited to see because of the platform, and they start to go to those second and third levels because we've only had this streaming service for about a month now. You know, what, does, what do you think the future looks like for Cast a Deadly Spell? Does this have its moment to enter sort of that canon of 90s horror classics in the way that maybe like a Dean, uh, not Demon Rin, but uh, Demon Knight did? Does it have that kind of capability in it? I think so. I, I really do. Especially upon my like revisit earlier today. Like, you know, I've loved this movie since I was 10 years old. But, you know, for the longest time, like, you know, I hate to reference Halloween 3 or The Exorcist 3 and that kind of stuff. But, you know, when I was getting pants and given wedgies in fourth and fifth grade because no one likes those movies. And, you know, I was an idiot for liking a movie that didn't have Michael Myers in it. You know, like, it felt like I was alone in this. And for the longest time, I felt that way with Cast a Deadly Spell. But even within the last week or two, I've really seen online, especially on Twitter, 
people discovering this movie for the first time. You know, and I think HBO Max is doing such a great thing with with putting a lot of these older movies that they release on their platform. I mean, that and it's a world building film. I mean, if you like Cast a Deadly Spell, you know, three years later, you'd get the sequel. Like I said, Witch Hunt, which I mean, Fred Ward isn't isn't Lovecraft in that film. Dennis Hopper is. But it was directed by Paul fucking Schrader, you know, who wrote Taxi Driver. You know, like Angelo Badalamenti did the music to Witch Hunt. Like it's 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 a two film series at this point that I feel like once it gets discovered, it's going to be a word of mouth kind of building of of this fan base for this film. And I think it has the potential to be one of those films that gets reevaluated with time and becomes a, a cult classic or just a classic in general. I mean, I could totally see so many retrospectives happen on this film. And I mean, dude, like. Who wouldn't want to see a cast of Deadly Spells slash Witch Hunt double feature Blu-ray from Screen Factory or Arrow? Like, I can see these movies getting reevaluated in the way that, like, Rad is now. I mean, growing up, going to the vi- like the video store, I would rent Rad on VHS all the time. And I'm so stoked that people are digging that movie now. I think cast of Deadly Spell is on its way there, too. Or we get the inevitable reboot starring Ryan Gosling. Oh, Lord. <laughs> no, I, I think the streaming aspect is definitely in favor of cast deadly spell uh, as we talk a lot about these movies on certified forgotten and half of them are movies you can't even get on blu-ray or some on dvd at all they are at a disadvantage an obvious disadvantage but cast deadly spell is now on this new streaming platform and it's a streaming platform that during quarantine and the pandemic and when people have a lot more time on their hands they can go deep diving. They can start cycling through titles. And yeah, you can start with the obvious ones, but you're going to start getting curious at some point. You're going to want to dig in and see what little golden nuggets are available there. And when you look at the poster art for it and you see that uh, quote, who framed Roger Rabbit, but with witches and demons and it's still toony. There's a lot of draw there. There's a lot there that can pull somebody in and, I, I think it does have a legitimate chance at getting that audience again. I, I think there's a whole swell of people who are going to start wanting to write about this on sites and start get that resurgence out there and be like, oh man, like, did you see this movie? The way that I kind of did with Demon Wind. I mean, I got to write about Demon Wind just because it started getting popularity again. How many years later? You know, I wrote my piece two years ago when it finally hit and it became this cult sensation that it quote unquote is now, but Cassadelli's Feld is right in line with it. It, it, If anything more so, because it's entirely more accessible. It has all the elements we talked about between the comedy and the the practicality and all these things. And it's also a good movie. I mean, I love my Demon Wind. I will defend Demon Wind until the death, but Cassadelli's Spell does a lot of things right that Demon Wind doesn't. So I, as much as, listen, I know, and that's a heavy statement coming from me. We, We all know what that statement means. So, I'm really into the uh, let's let's start championing Casadelli spell to the point that hell we do get a reboot someday because I think that'd be super fun in the right hands. Yeah, I'm with you there. I I do, Jerry. I, th- I think you actually probably had the best point that I can think of on this, which is just like this access getting it on HBO will allow people to see it. But what'll really move the needle on it is if and when one of those Blu-ray distribution boutiques decide to run with it. Like you give this a really color, like you, you give this a really good poster, you know, you redesign cause this, you know, this poster is not very good, but you give this a really good poster. You get do a little bit of artwork. You give it 
you know, the kind of the Mondo vibe for lack of a better phrase, um, and a couple of special features and a really good transfer. And this is immediately, it becomes one of those like core selling properties for whichever boutique label has it, I think. So you've got, you just got to, you get a little bit of buzz because it's on HBO Max and you parlay that into a, a limited Blu-ray release. And then it is as canon in horror corners as anything else that's been released in the last 30 years. Well, I think we did it, guys. I think we saved Christmas and or cast a deadly spell. Yeah. It Can it be both? No, it's not Christmas horror. No, it can't. No, it's not Christmas horror. You don't get to do Christmas horror anymore. Um, though I am going to remember forever that you <laughs> you you broke you broke your your pledge to Demon Wind and you've cheated on Demon Wind. It's a sad day for all of us. Um so Jerry, I want to say thank you for bringing us this movie because this is one of the more fun ones. And the again, the rare opportunity for Donato and I to agree on something and a horror comedy, no less, which is just boggles my fucking mind. Um, but, you know, I, I want to make sure that, that people have an opportunity to to uh, seek out your stuff. Um, I know, unfortunately, they can't read the Death Wave article that we've talked so much about. But if they want to engage with some of the other writing, the stuff that you're putting out there right now, um, or if they want to follow you and figure out you know how to what movies you're going to be composing for how to listen to some of the the, the new i believe you have a, a new lp coming out too right uh a new ep mm-hmm. yeah please promote yourself what what's the best way to follow you on social media how should people engage with you i i mostly talk to people on twitter like i have facebook and instagram but it's mostly just me like talking about my kids and stuff but uh on twitter uh, it's at jerry is just okay uh but yeah i have a new ep coming out on the 21st uh for my musical project rainy days for ghosts uh and uh yeah we have a, a new ep called submission tracks uh yeah we released the album cover last night with my wife's boobs on it uh so hopefully people will dig it uh yeah i have stuff coming out in fred central Oxford store stuff uh, i'm working on scoring this really great short for a filmmaker i really like i, I can't announce it yet but it's kind of like a cross between like if Cormac McCarthy and David Lynch got together. So it's kind of like really weird, but kind of, so yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff going on. I'm excited. That's very cool. I'm going to have to listen to that. Donato, I'm going to let you promote yourself too, because, you know, you need some sort of consolation after you've renounced your God. Well, I didn't say, listen, I love my demon wind still. It, it will still forever be my God and my glory, but I just have another, I, I have another title of champion now. I, th- I think if anything, I can start relating them and maybe I can use one to bookend the other and try to, you know, Trojan horse a watch in. Listen, if you like a cast deadly spell, then why not try Demon Wind? And then everyone goes, fuck you. No, no. No, No, this is the scene. This is the scene in silence where somebody asked you to step on the book and you did. Well, if if I if I must, then you can yell at me on Twitter at at (laughs) Donato Bomb. Or you can read my writing at such places now. What? what, uh, But this is going to post in September, right? Okay, so if this posts in September, at this point, I'll probably be pretty heavily done with my Fantasia coverage for Slash Film. And at this point, I will be back to writing mostly to uh, What to Watch, a little Plex, and probably, hopefully, some more Slash Film. So look for my stuff there, but as always, follow the Twitter on the Instagram and letterbox at Donatobomb, and you will be kept very up-to-date, probably more than you want to be. As for myself, you can follow me on social media, pretty much just Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Since my co-host didn't see fit to promote the website that we run, I suppose I will do that here. Um, you should and could also follow Certified Forgotten, which is the, the publishing component of our media empire at, at Twitter at Certified Forgot or the website CertifiedForgotten.com. Uh, we publish twice a week. We've got new articles coming up on Mondays and Wednesdays, and we're 
we're sharing some pretty cool voices. So make sure, if nothing else, I'm not even going to ask you to follow me. I'm just going to ask you, if you like what you heard today, leave us a review or go to certifiedforgotten.com. Support our writers. They're doing some pretty amazing shit. You guys have a really uh, good Patreon too. We do. We do. We we give way too much <laughs> stuff. Like, yeah. Yeah, we're, I mean, I, I subscribe to it. So, I mean, everyone else should. Oh, stop it, Jerry. Please do what he said. <laughs> All right. Well, Jerry, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today and for bringing such a great movie. Um, you know, when when we inevitably get around to the sequel to this, I think we'll. I think you're the only person. We got to bring you back to talk about the sequel at some point. I think it's set in stone. Donato, if you will, please take us out. Cast a deadly spell. Yes! Yes, I knew you were going to do that.